Hello and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today, today is the show's second review of the masterwork Emma by Jane Austen. Our last review published on February 17th, 2020, as I was not aware that there is such thing as a global pandemic on the horizon. It is episode 87 and linked in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the post for this episode, in case you're curious. And so the question stands, why read Emma again after a year? And that question can be answered through a couple means. The first, and something that I definitely emphasized in my last review of this work, is that I've been trying to increase the amount of older fiction that I've been reading for a while. And even past that episode, I remember a couple years ago commenting that I used to read a lot more older works than I truly do in my current practice today. Part of that, of course, is reading speed related. I'm not as fast at these old British novels as I used to be. Faulkner had it right when he said that when you light a match in the wilderness, in the dark forest, it's not to light a specific path, but more so to see how much more darkness there is. And he likened that feeling of just looking around to see how much more darkness there is to literature. And the more you read, the more you realize that literature is this endless thing that we can really never get to the bottom of. And that's the point, is the exploration and being able to see just how much more literature, how much more there is to understand and to know and to learn and to experience through literature and it's something that we can't really get to the bottom of ever in our exploration and I think that's the point and that's the beautiful thing of it and that's something that I have been thinking about recently as I've read A Heart So White by Javier Marias, of course the translated version and not in Spanish, the original language. Uh, There was a wonderful introduction of that book. I'll link that one in the description as well uh, if you are curious of that, but it was so thought-provoking and it gave me a lot to understand about not only Marias's approach to literature and to writing, but also this new perspective of wading into the waters because you know they're endlessly deep and not because you're trying to seek some sort of profound knowledge from that's certain in this one particular area. So in preparing for this episode, of course I reread Emma by Jane Austen, the primary novel of this episode. I read the audiobook once more. I read the audiobook a year ago when I finished this book. I believe I finished it early February and reviewed it a couple weeks later. This time I finished it over a longer period, so it wasn't like I sped through. I remember last time I really sped through and I am of the opinion that the more you read these books, the more quickly you must go because the plot gets so irresistibly good and you find time, you find little snippets of time to start listening to more and more of it and I definitely have had that experience as well. This time took me a long time to get through the first half. I always say the first 100 pages are the hardest of any novel, followed by the last 100 pages. 
especially in works like Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Uh, I think of Anna Karenina. I think of any number of Dickens books that we've read on the show, even. Dracula, for sure. Last horrifying classic season. I definitely think of these longer novels as posing a challenge right at the beginning, and it's because we, in our modern day lens, have to adapt, and sometimes quicker than not, to this new style and this new way of articulating the situation, this new way of really narration and perspective sharing. And I found that to be the case certainly with this novel the second time through. It took me quite a long time to get through the first couple hours of the audiobook, but once I was in hour four or five, it went quite speedily, and I ended up finishing the last three or four hours of the audiobook within the last couple days. Giving my last episode on this novel a listen, I'm surprised at how thorough a job I did at tackling the plot as well as a couple of larger issues from the novel, especially since the episode is only really nine minutes of talking about Emma, and then I tag on a couple minutes of talking about the show Love is Blind for, again, a couple minutes compared to <laughs> the nine minutes I spend on the actual novel, which I find hilarious and very fitting for that point in time. My last review was... I think fitting for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that I was able to simplify the plot in a really beautiful way, and that's a way that I'm sympathetic to even now, even though I'm going to complexify it <laughs> in this particular podcast on it. Uh, and I'm actually going to read part of my script from that last episode. At that point in time, I was scripting much more of the content that I was producing than I am now. Not to say that I don't script heavily now. If you listened to the episode a couple weeks back on Let Me Tell You What I Mean, that episode was almost entirely scripted. Uh, it just really depends on the occasion at this point, how much I'm scripting, and it's really fun for me to look back at some of these old scripts as I'm reviewing older episode styles. So let's get into my plot summary from last time of Emma by Jane Austen. Quote, in terms of understanding the plot in general, by the way, plot in novels like Emma is character motivated and character central, so an understanding of each character is crucial to an understanding of the plot in general. Of course, the person that arrives first on the scene is Emma herself who is the wealthiest and most sought-after young woman in Highbury. Much of the plot of the book revolves around Highbury's social scene, with a special focus on Emma and her young charge, Harriet Smith. Now, to be completely honest, Emma's relationship with Harriet is the one element that I was most critical of when I was reading the book. Again, this is last time, we'll talk about it in a minute. Because to me, it was obvious that Harriet was used as a device instead of as a character, and I got tired of reading about the ways in which Harriet, the device, was used in the novel, for example, as a constant social contrast to Emma, rather than the ways in which Harriet, the character, for example, might have grown over the course of the novel. But I digress. The people who surround Emma in her closest circle are Emma's father, who is constantly worried about the health and safety of everyone in Highbury and people catching cold from summer nights and winter nights alike, and who Emma will not leave for anything, not even a marriage and a new estate. 
Mr. Knightley, who is 16 years, I'm a senior and a family friend, also the only person in Emma's life who has ever been critical of her. And as an aside, his brother John Knightley is married to Emma's sister Isabella, though the pair don't live in Highbury and are thus not at issue for the majority of the novel. And last but certainly not least, Miss Taylor, aka Mrs. Weston, who was Emma's tutor growing up and remains still her greatest confidant after she leaves Emma and her father in favor of marriage to a Mr. Weston. So the Society of Highbury, true to form for English society at that time, expands and contracts throughout the course of the novel in that new people are both entering and exiting the scene all the time. For the sake of that past episode, I simplified the plot of the novel by revolving it around the three suitors that Emma tries to set Harriet up with. First, the vicar, Mr. Elton, who is leagues above Harriet yet below Emma in standing and ends up stirring quite a bit of trouble when it's revealed that his affections are devoted towards Emma instead of Harriet, and by the way, he upsets the scene more by marrying a wealthy woman from city society, big no-no. Second, Mr. Frank Churchill, who is Mr. Weston's son, but has lived since the death of Frank Churchill's mother with his aunt Churchill. He's a charming young man of three and twenty, who for a time woos Emma in, in a secret ploy of a secret engagement with another woman, Jane Fairfax, until Emma decides to give him up to Harriet. And thirdly, Mr. Knightley himself, whose implications with Harriet are not all, at all the design of Emma herself because, dun dun dun, Emma realizes that she's indeed in love with the critical Mr. George Knightley and has to even send Harriet away <laughs> to her sister's place on the slight errand of a toothache in order to make arrangements to marry him. Much of the novel is about station and class, and we see overt markers of it everywhere. Aside from the Harriet-Emma dynamic, there is Mrs. Elton, who overtly displays her prominence and wealth by wearing specific expensive jewelry or getting extra layers of lace or fabric sewn into her dress. She even makes a comment at Emma's wedding that there isn't enough satin in the room and therefore it's not as glamorous as her own wedding. So what Jane Austen is describing here is a very complex social game where Mrs. Elton might comment on whether or not there is ice readily available at the party, again comments at the wedding in particular, which shows the inferiority of the host's standards compared to hers, but social superiority could also be communicated through factors evenly, or rather even as inconsequential as a rumor. The book ends with the small yet comfortable wedding of Mr. George Knightley and Emma Woodhouse, which is the second of three weddings that are made near the end of the book, including firstly Harriet with Mr. Robert Martin, who is a young farmer turned entrepreneur, and then Frank Churchill with a character named Jane Fairfax, who whose story we are going to get into this time, I promise. <laughs> but after the wedding, and this is my big point at the end of the last episode, the book just ends. And that ending I had a lot of trouble with, especially as I had been listening to this book on 1.5 speed and I still had taken 9 or 10 or 11 hours on it. And I was distraught at the end that we had gone through so much with just a quiet, peaceful ending at the end, and really only a couple pages devoted to the happiness that we have been working towards 
for the entirety of the novel. <laughs> I was distraught, as I said. I didn't want it to end so simply. And it's similar, actually, to the ending of the novel Agnes Grey, where she gets married to Mr. Weston, who is a vicar, a quite different Mr. Weston from this novel, I should say. But nevertheless, it's a similar ending where there's lots of toil and strife and then it ends peaceably. And I think what's different about those two endings is, of course, the context of them. So we have, on the one hand, this tumultuous social book revolving around Emma, who is constantly in flux between emotions and facts and seeming figures of social standing and about events going on in her community. She's an extremely involved socialite in that regard, as far as she's allowed to be by her father, that is. And then there's this quiet, peaceable ending that is very much in contrast to the rest of the novel. And then we have a book, Agnes Grey by Anne Bronte, that is so peaceful all the way through and so loving and makes so many brilliant, for example, biblical and Latin and Greek allusions throughout. It's so intelligent in that regard. And it has this quiet, peaceable ending at the end that is literally a sigh of relief <laughs> after this web of strife that the narrator of Agnes Grey, Agnes Grey, so seeks to cover up for the entirety of the novel. We know that there's things happening, for example, Agnes Grey's oldest charge, who is about to get married, by the way, prevents her from seeing Mr. Weston and prevents her really from developing her relationship with him to the extent that they would really know each other by the time she's left and she only rekindles her relationship with him essentially on accident, sort of. <laughs> There's a long backstory there and this that is neither here nor there, but the point being that the ending in Agnes Grey is intentionally and energetically, emotionally suited to the rest of the novel, whereas the ending of Emma, so similar in stature and emotion and feeling to the ending of Agnes Grey, is not suited to the rest of the novel uh, Emma by Jane Austen. And it's That's what's particularly disturbing to me about it, I think, is that when you get through the end of this hugely long, masterful novel that is so... there's so many elements that we're going to discuss today, and hopefully, you know, in a year or two when I redo this novel yet again, hopefully maybe, maybe reading it outside of the audiobook format, which I'm sure would lend itself to a lot more interesting perspectives. Anyway, it's an ending that does not match the perplexity and the emotional intensity of the rest of the novel, and I'm still mad about it <laughs> one year later. So, regarding my particular summary of the book, I think the summary as it stands is a really interesting way to look at the novel, especially considering the quote-unquote time restraints that I had at the time of writing that last episode. And having the entire novel revolve around Harriet's three relationships I think is a risky move in some ways because of course there's so much going on in the periphery of those three quote-unquote main suitors and I'm dubious right now as to Mr. Frank Churchill's place as a suitor for Harriet almost. I know that Emma convinces herself that 
Frank Churchill would be a good suitor for Harriet, but really, even at the, well, even and especially at the party at Box Hill, where they sort of go out of town and take a little walk around, Emma and Frank Churchill are flirting, and Jane Austen uses that word flirting. <laughs> it's, it's sort of the definition of flirting at that point. And it would seem to me, as I think it seems to all the other characters in the novel uh, coming to its close, that Frank Churchill would have been a better so-called match for Emma and not for Harriet. So it was really Emma's own delusionment of mind that convinced her that Frank Churchill would be a good fit for Harriet. And I think she was putting off really fully understanding the obvious, which is that Harriet had fallen for Mr. Knightley, who she realizes was from the first hers, and she doesn't really quite comprehend what's going on with regard to her relationship and thoughts of, of for example, uh, Mr. George Knightley until she has to confront the thought that Harriet indeed meant Mr. Knightley when they were talking about, for example, relationships of great stratification socially. On the other hand, following Harriet's suitors in this fashion through the novel gives an overview of a really interesting series of touch points that are really easy to follow, especially for readers who a, are maybe new to this type of literature, or B, have not read the novel themselves. It gives them kind of the biggest, most basic picture, most basic touch points that the book can offer. And in this episode, I'm going to go into the works a little bit and talk about things like Jane Fairfax that I was remiss to have left out last time in my search for an understandable simple overview. So let's dive into what I have to say newly about this novel, considering also perhaps that I've read over 60 novels of varying proportions and timelines and authorships uh, throughout the last year since I read Emma last time and hopefully <laughs> reading those novels and having the different foci and perspectives and interests that I do now, hopefully those will all fall into place and really aid this second look at Emma. So first thing, I think the most pressing thing that I'll just get off my chest here is that Emma's impunity really bothered me in this second read through. And I think that's heightened by my almost lack of tolerance for her this time. I really was trying my best to be as impartial as I could going through the second time, knowing, for example, the ending, knowing how meddlesome Emma can be. I mean, she is, I think, 20 or 21 years old at this point, so it's not like she is a, a member of the oldest class in Highbury, for example. Uh, but she's not a child either, and that's something that Mr. Knightley, I think, in particular hones in on throughout the novel, is that her behavior really isn't acceptable at a lot of points, especially considering her st status. What she does and what she says to people matters a lot, especially I consider what she, she sort of makes fun of Miss Bates, and she's not very kind to Jane Fairfax through a lot of the novel, so... 
there's a lot of impact that she can make, and I don't think she gives full weight and full gravity to it. She seems to be not impulsive, but not as calculated as she needs to be either. And impunity in the sense that she's getting away with things that maybe she shouldn't have gotten away with. And I understand that at the end of the novel, as Mr. Knightley professes his love for her and in the garden as they're walking, um, taking all these turns and <laughs> figuring each other out, for lack of a better expression, she does start to remonstrate herself in a way that she hasn't for a lot of the novel. So there is a big point of growth at that latter section of the novel. I would say the latter sixth of the novel or so. And so that, I think, is a big tribute to Emma's character in general, but in terms of the novel as a whole, right? The first five, six, I don't think we can discount that large portion either. And it got me thinking about, in the past year, I haven't read any more novels by Jane Austen, so <laughs> maybe this episode is a little bit premature <laughs> to an episode that I could do knowing more about Jane Austen's work than I do. However, I have made close friends who know more about Jane Austen's work than I do. And those friends have given me a couple of key insights into Jane Austen's work. First of all, Emma is distinctly different from other of Jane Austen's novels in the sense that a lot of Jane Austen's novels have this cyclic trope of the poor yet worthy slash smart slash courageous and brave person growing into a better social status as the novel continues and so it's sort of like a rags to riches kind of story for very worthy characters. Emma by contrast is already in a position of high social status and therefore she kind of has a different feeling about her in a different beginning than a lot of other characters in Jane Austen's novels and she acts distinctly differently as well and and I think a lot of that is due to this very different social status that she's awarded at the beginning of the novel. So we see this, I think, very pressing contrast between Emma and other of Jane Austen's work in that regard. Another thing I learned from those friends is that the endings of Jane Austen's novels are consistently bad. It's not just the ending of this particular novel, unfortunately. It's like all of her novels, <laughs> and she just evidently was not very good at writing endings somehow, and I just, I marvel at this because she, you know, of course is such a talent and such a, an absurdly good writer that I don't understand how she could botch the ending time and time again of these amazing novels, and I think the painful part for me, as I said earlier, is that these novels are so epic and they're so tumultuous socially at least not like there's not like shipwrecks or anything um in at least not in Emma like in Dickens for example Dickens I would say is a little more tumultuous and he writes the endings to suit that tumult which is something that Jane Austen doesn't do she writes at least in, in the case of Emma right we're only talking about Emma here I don't have really authority on her other novels quite yet that she doesn't give Emma's ending just as much of a boom as I wish she would have. 
Alright, and let's end this episode by talking about none other than Jane Fairfax because she definitely deserves more time than I have given her thus far. Jane Fairfax is- I find her backstory to be quite fascinating. Essentially what happens is her father, who's in the military, dies and there is a colonel named Colonel Campbell who has a debt to repay to her father and so he takes her in and she is becoming educated as a governess for essentially her whole upbringing. Like she's employed sort of as a like household figure it seems like but also really just as another daughter to the Campbells and she is quite talented and delicate and she has all of these amazing attributes. Uh, I think mostly from Emma's perspective of course we have her great measure of reserve that Emma does not like. <laughs> Emma does not like Jane Fairfax until I would say the end when Emma herself starts to change. She starts to become more open to Jane Fairfax's attention and company. But before then, Jane Fairfax has an interesting bout where she ends up coming to Highbury for a length of time to stay with Mrs. Bates, who is her aunt, and the elderly Mrs. Bates, who I suppose is her grandmother. I think a hard realization for me this second time through the novel is that I didn't like Jane Fairfax the first time I read the novel, and therefore omitted her from the podcast. <laughs> Because I was believing Emma's point of view to the extent that I thought her worldview was invaluable, which of course is a huge mistake to be making with any sort of literature, especially these first-person narrative accounts. Well, really, it's not first-person, but it's omniscient third-person with a severe emphasis on Emma. And here's the great tragedy of that, is that I missed this gold mine that was Jane Fairfax until the second time I read the novel. And what I realized is, essentially, to follow the advice of this art docent that I happened to listen in on in passing at one of the great Chicago art museums, and the docent was saying, if you dislike a painting, give it 20 more seconds of your thought and your attention because that 20 seconds will probably change your mind. I think these words were so powerful not only in the context of art, especially I was in the modern art wing and I'm a huge lover of modern art and I know that a lot of people don't get modern art and it doesn't affect them the way that it affects someone like me, who I am a person who can stand in front of a modern work, a very abstract work, a monochromatic work, what have you, and I could be moved almost to tears. And that kind of form and very architectural but very subtle art affects me deeply. And it affects me as much as, for example, a Van Gogh affects some people or a Gangon affects some people. And I think those words were so powerful, not only in that context of the modern art wing, to people who maybe weren't familiar with modern art in general, but also in the broader context of life, is if you are feeling unhappy or annoyed, or if you genuinely dislike something or someone at first glance, give them more attention. 
And often the beautiful thing about that attention is that it will reveal to you not only things about yourself that maybe you did not want to confront initially about yourself or your perception of yourself, but also often it'll change your mind as it did with myself and Jane Fairfax. There's a fascinating analysis of Jane Fairfax linked in the show notes for this episode that I cite because I wanted to give Jane Fairfax more attention this time, and she definitely is a character that doesn't disappoint when you look more into her, especially as this review comments on in the context of Jane Austen's other works. Jane Fairfax is kind of an anomaly. She's a character that has all of these great attributes, as I said earlier, and her only failing in that regard is her lineage. She doesn't have a dowry, for example. She doesn't have a family name to fall back on as Emma does, or as Mrs. Elton does, even as Mrs. Weston eventually does. And that makes Jane Fairfax's character all the more tragic, in the sense that it's this woman who has a great many number of talents and beauties and interesting interesting things about her, and yet she can't get anywhere in terms of her social standing, in terms of marrying upwards, because she does not come from that same pillar. And she ends up, as this review says, marrying someone who is above her in social status. However, he is disrespectful of her and he it parades about her and he is not necessarily a good match in terms of what this review is saying. I have a different review of maybe that last part there in the sense that I do think that... Frank Churchill, as immature and as pompous as he really is, I think that he does love her, at least from what I can tell. I'm not, again, I'm not an Austen scholar or something like this. Emma is the one book of hers that I'm familiar with. And from the context of Emma, I really do think that this whole, and maybe I'm focusing too much on Emma's self-change and perception and everything is really veiled by Emma's perception in this sense, but I do think that Frank Churchill loves her at the end of the day, and I don't know if that makes an excuse for how he treats her. I don't think so, actually, um, but I don't think he's the worst man after all, and this review is saying that he's likened to other characters in Jane Austen's works that are pretty much the worst, and therefore it's a social commentary on Jane Fairfax being almost extra in society, almost a vestige of certain society, because she has not a good place, not within her own social standing, because she's too talented and gorgeous for that and yet not in the other social standing, a higher one, because she does not have the family name or dowry or etc that she needs to move up. So it's a larger, in the larger context of the social implications of this novel and all the things that it revolves around, Jane Fairfax ends up being a commentary on 
the very society that Jane Austen is involving here. And I would say to that extent as well, there's a lot of characters that struck me as particularly Dickensian. And I would say I don't think that they're Dickensian in the sense of like a copycat scenario. I think they're quite unique to Austen as far as I can tell. But Dickensian in the sense that they're overdrawn to make another sort of social commentary as well. Uh, for example, Miss Bates and Mrs. Elton. Both of those characters have this insufferable, long-winded dialogue. Their turns are very long and they don't let other people take turns as long as them. And in Mrs. Elton's case, it's the insufferability of the rich in the sense that she's rich and that's it. That's where she ends. And yet she is purported to have a higher value than someone like Jane Fairfax who potentially has more educated, involved opinions uh, on important matters than Mrs. Elton does. But yet, because of the money, Mrs. Elton is the one people ask first and quote-unquote listen to first. Not really, <laughs> but um, I'd say Miss, Miss Bates is similar not with regard to the money, but just sort of this overwrought uh, graciousness that she has and almost performative humility that she is able to have. Again, insufferable, just like Mrs. Elton, but in the entirely opposite social status of someone who is rather humble in circumstance and plays the part, quite literally, of someone who is overtly gracious. I could go on. I would love to, for example, re-review this novel in the context of other novels by Jane Austen. I think that would be so fascinating and again so fruitful for this novel in particular because as I have heard from my colleagues and friends who love Jane Austen and have read more of her than I have, that Emma stands out in a couple, I think, especially pertinent or notable respects. Uh, in terms of her works as a whole, and I would love to dive into more of that personally and understand more of a basis for that. So, if you enjoyed this review, if you learned something, let me know. Thank you for your time and your attention. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. Have a wonderful rest of your week. We will be back next week with another section of Bleak House by Charles Dickens. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.